Hey, Nate here. If you haven't had a chance to check out Renovari's newest podcast, well, you should. It's a project I'm honored to be a part of. It's called Friends in Formation. It's a podcast where three very different friends take your questions about life and faith. Our goal is to listen, learn, and help one another go deeper with God. You can find the newest episode on our website, renovare.org. I would just say that he was my dad, and he was always my hero. He was always this man that I looked up to. When I think about the gift of his life in my life, it was about as congruent a life as anyone that I've either known of or known personally. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. Back in episode 199, I had a wonderful conversation with Eugene and Jan's son, Eric Peterson. We talked about how the sacrament of baptism informs his work as a pastor. After that recording, Eric and I went on to talk about his parents. Many of you know much about Eugene's life and work. He's the author of some 30 books, a translator of The Message. There's his endearing, raspy, measured cadence, his love of language, metaphor, and poetry. It's now been just over two years since Eugene passed, and Jan followed a few months later. There's something helpful and special to hear about their lives and ministry from the standpoint of their son and his take on their lasting legacy. I spoke with Eric over a video call from his church outside of Spokane, Washington. Eric, I'm curious, how did your dad and your upbringing influence your theology, your sense of vocation as a pastor? Yeah, you know, I hear that question a fair amount, and I think the common assumption behind it is that it's like, what was it like to grow up with Eugene Peterson as your dad? But, you know, he was just my dad and didn't really have any considerable notoriety until I was quite a bit older, really out of the house, before he became really known very well outside of our community. He was a faithful, local pastor of a small church for a long time, and was quietly working out his theology by writing, as many of us do. We you know, have an issue or a question or a problem, and we get it clarified through the process of writing. I mean, most writers, I think, are figuring out their own stuff. <laughs> That's right. You learn as you write. Yeah. I think that was the case for him. And it ended up being meaningful stuff for other pastors. And of course, he didn't become a household name until the publication of his translation, The Message. But by that time, he was, you know, moving on. And uh, anyway, I was not living with him during those years. So I would just say that he was my dad and he was always my hero. He was always this man that I looked up to who just seemed, although quiet and humble, he just seemed a little bit bigger than life. I think I thought of him as the guy who put the moon in the sky at night. And I felt just kind of safe with him. He was, you know, strong and affectionate. Um, but I think the thing that was perhaps most helpful, and I think about 
the gift of his life in my life is that it was about as congruent a life as anyone that I've either known of or known personally. So, you know, who he was when we're at the dinner table or playing a game of chess or watching a movie or just hanging out in the backyard, you know, a game of catch was the same person who appeared in a pulpit on Sunday morning, who in this more formal setting, you know, wearing a Geneva gown and Oxford tabs, (laughs) he was the same person. So that sense of integrity, everything just felt like it was, he was who he was. That's interesting, Eric. Our stories mirror each other. Growing up with my dad. I, I wondered about that. I was curious. Yeah. And as you were talking in our last podcast about your own movement to become a pastor, in some ways, doing ministry, growing up with families who have that history, in some ways, it's harder. And there's barriers to overcome that others maybe don't. But mine is the same experience that for me is my dad. And the other stuff, I like his work and I find it really helpful. But, um, and I could say the same thing. It's the congruence. There's an honesty yeah. that's helpful. I'm glad to hear that because probably like me, you have occasional conversations with adult children of somewhat famous people and it's a little bit of a club. I mean, there's a solidarity and that's not always the case I've found. You know, sometimes that congruity is not there. But even when it is, there is, I think, a price that we pay for being the children of such people that have a public ministry or a public face. I'm not afraid to say there was a cost that was involved that I incurred. And we had to work some things out in our relationship. There were times when I felt like, hey, you're sort of absentee dad there. And that sent me into therapy and I had to do some work and he and I had to have some hard conversations. And that's no small part, I'm sure, of my own motivation to become a pastor is it put me into his world it made us colleagues. Even so, it's tricky to be identified and associated with the son of Eugene Peterson. And so for quite a few years, I did not disclose that because I found that it affected my relationships with people. They viewed me or related to me kind of vicariously, or maybe I should say they related to him vicariously through me. And I had to find my own voice. I had to find my own kind of way and style. And during that time, I would say our relationship was fine. We loved each other. Our relationship was fine. It just wasn't in public view much. But after a number of years where I felt like I know who I am, people are viewing me for who I am and not as the son of somebody, then it felt timely and right to, I refer to this as coming out. (laughs) There was sort of this coming out, like, all right, world, uh, Eugene <laughs> Peterson, that's my dad. <laughs> I used to lie about who my dad was when I was young. Yeah. And I got a note from someone a few years back, with someone I went to high school with, who said, read your dad's book or whatever. And I, I always thought your dad was a lumberjack. Because <laughs> that was my line. This was in Kansas. So I thought it was hilarious that you know, my dad's a lumberjack, but there's no lumberjacks in Kansas, but they, apparently she bought it. I'd, I'd forgotten about it. But it's a weird, like there's such a gift and a blessing and it opens doors, but it does come with some challenges that I don't know. I, I mean, it's just, it's hard to articulate. 
Yeah, I think it adds a layer of complexity, just requires having to work through some things. I have zero regrets. I'm really grateful that I got to be his son and that we had a good relationship. I speak about him in the present tense. You know, he's part of the communion of saints, he and my mother, and I think they're with us. I think they're praying for us. I gave him a pocket knife on Father's Day a long time ago, and after he died, I asked my siblings if I could have that. And it's become a ritual for me. When I get dressed, I take the pocket knife off my dresser, and as I put it in my pocket, I say, I'm carrying you with me, Dad. Mm, I like that. It's just a, a helpful reminder for me that he's he is with me. And I think we can honor our parents no less in death than in life. Him and your mom read to each other each night. What was that about? It was a sweet point of connection. In their latter years, it wasn't so much at night, like bedtime. It was more afternoon. And they just took turns reading to each other. We've got photographs of them sitting outside above Flathead Lake playing footsies while she's reading (laughs) out loud. And I think it was just a practice they got into. They enjoyed it. There was a marital intimacy about it for them. And it's something that Elizabeth and I, my wife and I, enjoy doing. We're not nearly as disciplined in doing it daily because of our lifestyles and schedules. It's just a sweet point of connection. And they read some really great books. (laughs) In meeting your mom, there's something I really liked about how they would travel together. She felt like a really important part of Eugene, your dad's life. Uh, what, What was she like? What is she like? Let's go there. (laughs) She's a more extroverted, a bit more gregarious people person. I think my dad could have been a recluse, could have gone monastic on us. (laughs) But she kept bringing people into the house. And so instead of just corresponding by letters, as could have happened, just on his own, they invited people in. They had meals together. There was one year I remember I was talking to him on the phone and he said, I just gathered up all the stuff for our income taxes to be filed. There must be some tax benefit to having people in your home. And he said, we had over 200 overnight guests last year. Wow. And that wasn't atypical for a season. There was a a number of years where that was typical. This was after they had retired from Regent and were just living full time at Flathead Lake. That was sort of this last season of ministry, I think, where he was continuing to write. He was publishing about a book a year. They were caring for people, many pastors and couples who were kind of right on the edge of burnout or who were trying to get a reset. They weren't all hurting, damaged people, but there was a lot of that. You know, part of what's been gratifying about these last couple of years since they've died is that now I'm receiving a lot of those stories, hearing the gratitude, the experiences. This is what happened because they would just get those, you know, notes and cards directly. But now I've been hearing them and, um, and I've sort of become the de facto spokesperson for the family. And so I tend to receive those more than my siblings do but my goodness, there are no surprises there. I've just been just been struck by the volume. And this was your mom's doing? Largely. I don't think that would have been the case had it not been for 
her having pretty early on identified herself as having the gift of hospitality. She was a careful cook. There was no fast food in our house. She made scratch meals and it was leisurely. There was, you know, hours around the table Hmm. and the dishes just get piled up, stacked. They can wait till tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, The conversation is what's important. So the community for them changed over the years, you know, from parish to academy, but then to their house uh, where people mostly were traveling to see them. But hearing the testimonies of people, not exaggerating when they say, your parents, as a result of that visit, saved our marriage or saved my ministry, and in a couple of cases, saved my life. Wow. That is so interesting to me. I didn't know that they had, you know, that volume of people. But just as you're talking, I'm thinking of, I think, four people that I know who visited them and how impactful it was. And I find it so interesting that his reach, I almost want to say their reach, because I know she was in, involved in that, the profound, yet these intimate welcoming of folks brought change, right? It did. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't think it's a stretch to say that my dad couldn't have done what he did without my mother. And there were times, I mean, I've I've heard uh, Ruth Graham talk about how, how difficult that was at times, you know, being married to Billy with that crazy schedule that he had. And Jan certainly felt that at times, like, I'm not having fun here. (laughs) but that's again it's like if you're that close to this man uh, there's a price you pay in order to allow him to be who god has made him to be to live out this calling the family doesn't always get uh, to be at the front of the line other people take cuts at times as do deadlines and other priorities i think for the most part she was settled in that and embraced that that sense of partnership with him. She traveled with him, took good care of him, but she was also her own person. One of the gifts of her life toward the end was to write a book and uh, kind of told her story. And that was, I think that was a sweet moment for her, but they, they very much were, you know, partners in this. I've heard pastors say, uh, and I saw this, you know, when I was growing up, he read a lot. He was he had a list and he would just work through an enormous number of books every year. I uh, got through the classics and that's what he did in his free time. And these pastor friends will say things like, I, I'd love to do that. I could never get away with that. My wife would never let me do that, nor would my kids. <laughs> uh, but because of her, he was able to do that. Right. And, and we're the beneficiaries of that, that fertile imagination he had that it just kept producing. Do you have a favorite of his work? Um, Yeah, only because it's dedicated to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I I think it is anyway. This is a book on Jeremiah called Run with the Horses. I I know it. That the seed for it was planted really when our relationship, it was the tipping point where it went from like son, father to peer. And I was sharing with him my own sense of identity with Jeremiah. And we just had this really engaging, long, rich conversation, and it prompted him. This was a, during a summer vacation on a road trip, and uh, it prompted him to uh, return to Maryland that fall and preach a, a 
sermon series, which then was developed into this book. It's a really great book. It's really meaningful to me. And I was really gratified to hear Bono say that it had become an important book for him. He refers to it as a manual for his life. Wow. Wow. That colleague relationship, it's fun, isn't it? Oh, am I? Yeah. He never stopped being my dad, but we did have a, I think, a, a, a clear sense of collegiality. We're in this, we're in the company of pastors together, working this stuff out. Yeah, I love that very much. Because even when he left the parish and was, you know, moving more into academy and just kind of full-time writing, his identity vocationally never wavered uh, from being a pastor. And that's why he titled his memoir, The Pastor. In that memoir, towards the end, there's an exchange. I believe that you were referencing him having one message. Do you remember this? He was preaching and he asked you how it was. And am I getting it wrong? I think you got the message right. I think it was my brother that accused him or teased him of having only one sermon. Leaf wrote a poem about this. When he was under contract to translate the message, I said, we should have a commissioning. We should formalize this. You should be commissioned to do this work. Uh, this is no small thing. So we all met in um, Colorado Springs at Glen Erie. And oh, had this, I love Glen Erie. <laughs> yeah, had this commissioning service. And we all had a, a role. I, I think my main role was just to pray over him and anoint him. But my brother on this occasion was commissioned to write a poem. And in the poem, it kind of playfully talks about how there's one, one sermon and you've been <laughs> fooling people all these years. But I'm not going to give a secret away because I don't want to jeopardize my inheritance. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the message. I know it because you've been, I think he said something like, I know this because at night you steal into my room and speak the words into my sleeping head. Here it is. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. Good message. That preach. <laughs> well, Leaf would argue that that's all he ever really did. He <laughs> rearranged the letters and the words a little bit, but that's the central message. What's your central message? As a pastor? Yeah, I, I mean, I shared with you earlier that I feel like my primary vocational calling is to keep this particular congregation attentive to the presence and the, and the ways God is active in the world. And not just to see it and notice it and observe it, but to actually participate in it. That is to say, we're given agency as ministers of reconciliation, we actually participate in these redemptive movements. So the way I think about this is that there are six days of creation. Everything's made ex nihilo, out of nothing. And then there's this day of rest. And by day eight, the, the creation is done. God's not forming any new thing. But after the fall, there's this mess. And so God's energies get kind of reoriented from creation to redemption. We're going to heal now the parts that are broken. And I just feel like that's, that's what I do. I try to keep people attentive to redemption. Among the things I've learned in my life is that redemption 
requires cooperation. It doesn't just happen um, automatically. We participate in it and we cooperate with it because we can, in fact, defy it by denying it or just resisting it. So I think my core message probably changes every day in terms of how it actually sounds. I don't have this written down anywhere as like a rule of life or rule of faith, but it's pretty close to reminding people that they are the beloved and that's known to us through the sacramental identity as the baptized children of God. And so it's all about identity and purpose. It's like, this is who you are now live like it. And the exercise of church discipline, I think at its best, doesn't just raise a scolding finger and say, you're off track, you're wayward, you're disobedient, you're in sin. It says, you know, that's not really behavior becoming to the baptized. Can we rethink about, you know, a, a different approach, a different way? Uh, let's take a look at the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> See if that <laughs> suggests anything for us. Eric, how do you want your parents to be remembered? I asked them that. I called a family meeting two or three years before my dad died when we saw the decline. And I just said, you know, I, I want to make sure that we're honoring you well, caring for you, uh, serving your interests as you head down the home stretch. And so I had, a, I had a legal pad. We spent two parts of two days together, the five of us. And I just had a bunch of questions. And one of them was, what do you want your legacy to be? And my dad, with his kind of typical thoughtful pause, responded finally by saying, you know, until you ask the question, I hadn't even thought about it. And then I think it was the next morning, we were kind of shuffling around the kitchen, getting breakfast ready. And he said, you know, I, I was thinking about that question about legacy. I think I know what the answer is. And I said, oh, great. What? I, and I got my legal pad out. <laughs> <laughs> and he, just, he looked at me with these just piercing blue eyes. And he said, you're my legacy. I actually kind of like that. That feels good and right to me. Uh, and it doesn't feel burdensome. Like I'm all his legacy. Like everything has to come from me now. But I do get to serve it. I mean, I get to participate in it. I get to continue to sort of be his spokesperson. So, for example, there's a Peterson Center now uh, named after him. There were two institutions that were interested in hosting this. And so I was in a process of doing some research. And so I was just calling directors of different centers around the country. And I won't name them for you because uh, I don't want to disparage anybody. But <laughs> I, was, I was returning. I was on a flight returning from one of these places. And it occurred to me, I just thought, all of those other centers that I've been inquiring of, they are all named by the people. How do I say this? Uh, they're, they're named. <laughs> I know where you're going. After the people. Well, no. Yeah. It's, so it was those people that had the idea. that said, hey, let's make a center and name it me. And that's not a critical statement, but it, it occurred to me. I just had this moment where I thought that thought never would have even occurred to Eugene. And if it had, he would have repented of it in the very next moment. <laughs> yeah. So um, I love that he didn't know about it before, didn't think about it, didn't want it, but now it exists. And there will be pastors that will converge at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan, doing various things. There will be 
conversations and conferences, doctor of ministry programs, cohorts of people that will be kind of working with and around and developing their pastoral theology based largely on the influence of Eugene's. And that's very gratifying. And that feels to me like a significant part of his legacy. And I would say their legacy. Eric, so good to meet you. (laughs) Well, likewise, Nate. Yeah, I kind of feel like we could do this all day long. Again, that was Eric Peterson. Eric wrote a book with his father titled Letters to a Young Pastor, Timothy Conversations Between Father and Son. And Jan Peterson wrote a delightful book titled Becoming Gertrude, How Our Friendships Shape Our Faith. You can find out how Eugene's work continues on at the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination. It's housed at Western Theological Seminary. I'd also recommend checking out the podcast Eugene did with On Being's Krista Tidbit. I think I've listened to it a good three times. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. This work is made possible by donations from people like you. You can support this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Other music is by Lee Rosevere. And until next time, be well, friends. Be well.